When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you don't go to geico.com, car insurance can be confusing. Like Swedish techno confusing. Bark, bark, meow, meow. Dance with me, purple cow. Bark, bark, meow, meow. Ooh, you lovely cow. Geico makes it easy. With 24-7 access, all you have to do is go to geico.com and you could save money on car insurance. It just makes sense. Unlike, you know. Dance with me, purple cow. I like your moves. Welcome to Real Jam Radio. I'm Danny LaRue, your host, and so happy to have you with us for this episode. This is the much-anticipated, often-requested Pacific Division Capsule Podcast, and so for those of you who've been listening to the other ones, welcome back, and for those of you who are new, this is an off-season review and season preview podcast, and I was honored to have on somebody who's never been on Real Jam Radio before, and that's Baxter Holmes of ESPN. He's doing some great work writing about the Lakers now, knows this part of the country very well, and so... We start out with an off-season review, who got better, who got worse, talk about Phoenix, what they're doing, and the Warriors, of course, everybody. I mean, you only have five teams, and we talk for an hour 15, so we spend plenty of time on everybody. But we do that, and then we get into a season preview, ranking the teams 1-5, to five, talk about the playoff picture just generally, and I really like the conversation. I think you'll get something out of it. So thank you so much for listening, and hope you'll like, enjoy it as much as I enjoyed recording it. Thank you so much for coming on. Yeah, thanks for having me, man. Pleasure. So we're getting closer to the season, which I actually think is a good time to do a combination off-season review and season preview, because now we know a little bit more about what the teams are going to look like. But we'll start with what has already happened. And I like to start with a basic question, which is, who do you think got better and who do you think got worse? The best off-season in the Pacific, I have to give to the Clippers, in part because they held on to DeAndre Jordan when it seemed like he was going away and had he departed to Dallas, which seemed like it was a done deal, you know, that would have just been such a devastating blow and really put a team that has been in contending status but hasn't quite been able to go over a hump. I mean, I feel like it would have closed that window, you know, which obviously for the Clippers has never really been open that long anyway. But getting him back, and then on top of that, being able to add Paul Pierce, who has gracefully accepted this late career, off the bench, 
scoring role when needed. And then also Lance Stevenson, who's kind of a wild card. We don't quite know what we're going to get uh, out of him. But he could, you know, there's times when in Indiana when he was a great, very versatile player who could really fill the box score in a lot of areas. So, granted, the West is really tough. And just coming out alive is such a tall order. But the best offseason I could give to them, the toughest one, I'd probably give to the Lakers just because they struck out on all their top free agent targets again. If they had been able to get any of the guys that they were going after the big names, you know, such as LaMarcus Aldridge is the, is the big one, or even DeAndre Jordan or Greg Monroe, it would have been a really nice offseason for them, along with drafting D'Angelo Russell second overall. But not getting those guys, you know, it's just a really, there's a rough blow for them considering how the past two offseasons had gone, uh, and you know everybody else in the division. I feel like is is pretty stacked. Sacramento had kind of a weird off season, but I, yeah, it's hard not to know what to make of their team. But I do like some of the pieces they've added if they pan out. But yeah, that's so best and worst. I uh, I'd say are right here in Los Angeles. Clippers best, Lakers worst. I think that's fair, and what makes the Clippers offseason for me so impressive is the limited amount of resources they had to do it. Is This is a team that had the taxpayer mid-level exception, they had bird rights on DeAndre Jordan, and then they basically had minimum salaries. They didn't have a first-round pick because I believe it went to Boston in the Doc Rivers trade, right. quote-unquote. So they had a very small arsenal to get better. And they used everything they had about as well as you could reasonably expect. They did, you know, people might be critical of Lance Stevenson, but they gave up Matt Barnes, which hurts a little bit, and Spencer Hawes, who was functionally dead money for them. He was a disappointment. You know, maybe he could have been used better. And the Lakers, as you said, were kind of the opposite side of that coin. They had a lot of resources. I think they did get better, but the criticism that I would have of what they did is that they didn't, focus as much of that effort on getting better long-term. And I, I, something I, I, you've spoken to before, and I'm sure we'll talk about now, is that they're feeling a different pressure because they have well, the, one of the most famous players in franchise history, one of the most famous players in any franchise's history, Kobe Bryant. And so that makes it more pressing to try to be relevant now. And so I'm not critical of them, because especially that the, they weren't sacrificing as much because... They, they they went after the big fish and the big fish said no. So it's not like they were sacrificing on that to to trade for Roy Hibbert to sign Brandon Bass, but they didn't really invest other than their draft picks. They didn't really invest in the future in that sense. But also, I did really like the Lou Williams move. I think that's a nice little a nice little asset for them to have moving forward. You you bring up an interesting point with them in terms of like their future. And also the now. And the Lakers have publicly said that, you know, they're walking kind of a tricky line with developing these players, but also being competitive now. And I really don't know how you balance those two things because, you know, they're in rebuilding mode. These young guys, D'Angelo Russell, Jordan Clarkson, Julius Randle, they need time to develop to get better. The team just isn't going to be very good right now as those players do that. And that's just part of, of, of youth. Um, but they all, you know, they brought in, you know, Roy, Brandon Bass, uh, Lou Williams, and they want to kind of still be good, which means, I guess, having some more veteran players play and, and relying on them. But then it's like, you know, what does that do to the minutes that these younger players need 
to play through and gain experience and make mistakes and learn how to play in the NBA level. Um, so I don't really know how they, they kind of walk this this line all throughout the year. And, and you reference Kobe, it's such a tricky time for them because on one hand, they have young players who could be the core of their future. On the other hand, you know, they still have Kobe, who is this enormous cash cow for them. Um, in, in so many ways, and they're trying to celebrate what could be his final year, but you know, it's, until he's gone, the franchise really doesn't turn the page, and even then, uh, you know, to whatever the next chapter is, which would be likely these young players. But even then, it's not for certain that he would leave after this coming year. So the dynamic, you know, that's going to hang out over their entire season. It's it's a really interesting dynamic, and I just, yeah, I mean, you know, how they walk this line between the past and present between competitive, being competitive and developing, I just think it's too much to ask, considering all the factors that are involved. Do you have a feel yet for how they're going to run the rotation? Because one of the things that I've been hoping for, but I, I don't think it's going to happen, is that they put the older players together, so meaning Kobe, Brandon Bass, and Hibbert, and then really do a, a young guns second unit with Randall. Because like, Randall's been playing well enough to be in the first unit, but I feel like you want to build his chemistry, not with Hibbert and Kobe, who might not be on the team next year, but with Clarkson and D'Angelo Russell, who very well could be. So what we've seen a starting lineup in several of the games, and granted Kobe's missed, I think, the last couple, and he's probably going to miss uh, Thursday as well, is a lineup of D'Angelo Russell at the one, Jordan Clarkson at the two, Kobe Bryant at the three, Randall at the four, and Hibbert at the five. So... They've had the youth all together in the starting lineup, which is great, and I think that's how it should be. Those guys need minutes together. The tricky thing is going to be if they get down big in a game, which certainly, you know, the West is going to happen. What does Byron do? You know, does, and if the if the younger guys are struggling, does he then concede and give more playing time to Lou Williams or to Nick Young or to Brandon Bass over Hibbert? Or sorry, over Randall. You know, how does he kind of uh, juggle these things, and it's just, I don't really know, I mean, it would be really interesting to see how that plays out, but um, I hope for their sake, I hope for the sake of the organization that Byron will let the kids stay out there and just learn and play and whatnot, and I like the, the, the starting five that we've seen in a few games, and I hope that he sticks with it. That's a good way of putting it, and, and I think you're right about the idea of closing games. I mean, we don't know how many close games the Lakers are going to be in, but I think it's great to get that experience, especially if you've reached the, you know, kind of the minimum talent level where it's relevant. I mean, you don't want to necessarily see a team get blown off the floor at the end of games, but if they can do it and be competitive, even if they end up losing, I think that's a nice way of doing it. And what you've seen so far, we'll talk about it in the season preview part too, but D'Angelo Russell, I wouldn't necessarily use the word divisive with him, but he is somebody who there are differences of opinion. What have you seen so far from him, particularly in the preseason, but summer league too, that informs you about what he can be as a player, not so much maybe right now, but more, let's say, a couple of years from now? Sure. His playmaking is very natural. You know, it's a talent. I've heard some coaches say, like, your court vision and ability to squeeze a ball through a tight window or just to kind of maybe see things a little bit before they happen is a gift, and he certainly has it. He's made many passes throughout the preseason. 
that uh, display that talent, you know, which we saw in a lot of highlight tapes coming out of um, Ohio State. Also, and I, I recognize this a little bit from being around Rondo and covering him before, John Rondo, D'Angelo is, is going to make gamble. He's going to gamble for, for passes because he, be, you know, he believes that he can make them. His teammates won't necessarily be ready for the ball. There's going to be turnovers. But, you know, I believe Steve Nash, Russell Westbrook, those guys had high turnover rates when they were rookies, and, you know, they turned out okay. I don't think it's a bad thing for a point guard who has that ability especially if he's just kind of learning to make those mistakes. I think that's fine. His shooting and, and his his, uh, his overall game on offense when it comes to scoring, I think that he's going to struggle, and he already has struggled so far, with the idea of when to be aggressive and when to defer. And this is really going to come into play with when Kobe's on the court because all the players, not only D'Angelo, are going to feel that on every possession they have to defer to him um, instead of being aggressive, particularly if they have something in front of them. And so we've seen that some, um, you know, he wasn't particularly good in some of these. He's looked better here. Byron has messed up the lineups a little bit, including having been able to come off the bench a couple times. So it's hard to really see any continuity from him. But there's been, there's been times out there when he's running the offense and he's moving the ball with great proficiency and has given the Lakers kind of a four general or, you know, at least elite passing point guard, playmaking point guard uh, uh, that he could potentially be. And and the Lakers, have, they're one of the only teams, it seems like, in the Western Conference or, frankly, in the entire NBA who haven't had a player at that position who had playmaking play, uh, capability. So now they have that, but he's obviously young, make a lot of mistakes, and sure enough, when they get out there and he's facing, you know, the point guards in the West on a nightly basis, you know, they're going to eat him alive. But, that's just part of it. Yeah, I think that is part of it. I'm excited about him as a passer. I worry a little bit about his ability to create separation. But if he can pass like he did even in Summer League, I think that's an amazing step. But we can move on. Uh, there, I don't really have a specific thing on it, but w- a move that happened this summer, trade, draft pick, that really stood out to you as something that was interesting, that, that caught your attention. You know, the, uh, well, regarding all the teams in the Pacific, the, the thing that was most interesting to me is what's going on in Sacramento. Mm-hmm. The blend of players up there, it feels like it just, it could, it could be, they could be pretty good or really good, or they could be an absolute circus train wreck, whatever you want to call it. But the, the guys, you know, Rondo was run out of Dallas and, and that was just such a complete disaster and he's, Going to uh, a play, you know, one of the last places I think we'd ever find him at this point in his career. To Marcus, all the drama with him and Coach George Carl, you know, Willie Cauley Stein, uh, you know, they drafted him. He's looked pretty good, what we've seen him in preseason. Uh, just uh, the whole the whole system. I I have no idea really what to expect from them. They're, to me, one of the most intriguing teams in the NBA, and in terms of watchability, I think it can be absolutely fascinating. I was talking to Rondo about them recently, and, you know, he talked about how they have no expectations, and everyone just kind of thinks that they're going to be, you know, a joke or a laughing stock, and they very well could be, but they could also be, you know, with the players they have, and, I, you know, they have a lot of guys from Kentucky, so, you know, maybe the chemistry is good because they share that bond, but I'm really interested in watching them in person this year. I got to see them once in summer league, but you know, or sorry, once in preseason, but that's just preseason. But yeah, I'm really interested to see 
uh, how the Kings look this year. What makes them different than any other team for me, and I'm speaking only as myself, is that there are teams that I'm not sure about, but a lot of that is related to players on their on that squad that I'm that I'm uncertain. You know that they there's some sort of variability. With the Kings, I feel like I have a pretty good sense of all their players. They've been in the league a long time. A guy like Willie Colley Stein, I watched a fair amount of him in college. But I honestly do not know how they're going to fit together. So what makes them really different than last year, while I think they gave up too much to do it, is that they have a lot of NBA-caliber talent, which is incredibly mm-hmm. important. I mean, I think that's what not what, what Boston ended up doing You know, last year. They had a good coach. And they had they just didn't play that many bad players, and you can do a lot better with that in the East than you can in the West. But there is something to be said for you know not starting Ray McCallum for a stretch of the season, which is something they did last year. I mean they they turned a starter into a backup in Darren Collison because they just added Rashawn Rondo, and they're in a in a situation where they have some time pressure to be good now because they're going into a new arena. So whether or not they're good. They're definitely interesting, and they're a team that I'm going to focus on early in the year because even though it might take them some time to figure out, that will tell us a lot about where they're going. Oh, I, I completely agree. I mean, I, there's a lot of situations around the league that, are, that a lot of people are going to have their eyes on very closely. I think Oklahoma City is a huge one just because of all that's at stake for that organization in the coming years. But in terms of like the potential to be... Sacramento just feels like a chemistry lab project where a bunch of, you know, unusual ingredients were thrown into a pot and, you know, we don't know what's going to come out of it. Like, it could be awesome. It could be terrible. Um, it kind of feels like it'll be one of those two things, Like I, it, which is maybe the most intriguing thing about them. Like, I just don't see them being somewhere in the middle, like it'd be, it'd just being mediocre or, or whatnot, just because – but they do have a lot of NBA talent. Like, and you bring up a great point. They have – a lot of high-end NBA-caliber players, you know, Rudy Gay, uh, you know, Wanda when he was at his best, although we haven't seen that from him in quite some time, especially since his injury. DeMarcus Cousins, obviously, although he's going to be volatile. You know, Collison's a nice point guard. I'm really interested to see Willie Collie sign. So that mix, I mean, I don't know what will come out of it, but I can't wait to see yeah, I, I, I agree with you, and I think that not, I'm not leading you into an answer on it, but what I have next on the kind of on the docket is the newcomer that you're that you think is going to be let, let's say the best. I think best you could say most impactful, whichever of those you think is more interesting. But who you think is going to be the best newcomer to their team? Yeah, I'm part of me. I really want to say Tyson Chandler. I'm thinking of you know some of the Lakers young players, but it's hard to know exactly what you know they're going to be able to bring to the table. And there's obviously the Kobe dynamic there. The Clippers, you know, some of their other players, uh, either Glance or Paul Pierce, Golden State, hard to say. Sacramento, I mean, it could be any number of guys, but they they don't seem – it could be hit or miss with any of them. But Tyson Taylor seems like a pretty solid guy. I mean, you know what you're getting from him in every year when he's in Dallas. He's a very, very safe player, you know, great high-percentage shooter in the, in the low post. Um alters a lot of shots, blocks a lot of shots, grabs a lot of rebounds. It would have been great for them had he been paired with Marcus Aldridge, obviously. That, you know, that was the plan. Didn't work out. But in terms of reliability and a newcomer and you know what you're going to get, I can't think of anybody, uh, and, you know, unless I'm just missing something major, I can't think of anybody who jumps out more than him right now. 
I'm in, in firm agreement with Tyson Chandler. I'm very excited to see what he can do. There were actually two in this division that I think will really impact the defensive identity, and that that's Hibbert and Tyson. But what Tyson does, I think he's a more complete player. I also think that he brings a a level of respect and experience and success that will be very useful for Phoenix. Phoenix is a team that, despite having a lot of talent, I think they've, they haven't really had that identity. They haven't had that, you know, they've had some fun stretches, I think, last year in that early run when they had Dragic and Bledsoe. They were, you know, they were starting to build an identity that fell by the wayside when everything that happened happened. But Tyson Chandler, you know, even though he's not what he was, and, you know, he's not even what he was when the Mavericks won their title, he is still somebody who, when you put him on a team, you expect them to be at least respectable defensively. And they have Eric Bledsoe, who's a very good defender at the one. And that is huge for them because they have, they've had talent. You know, this isn't a team that, you know, they, they finished ninth in the West two years ago. And, they, they, you know, that they were this huge success story that, that didn't make the playoffs, which there's something amazing about that. That doesn't usually happen where a team is the buzz of the league, but that's because everybody thought they were going to be so horrible and they weren't. And Chandler does that. I agree with you that it would have been very different with LaMarcus. I mean, if LaMarcus joins their team, they're a playoff team, and that, that's huge for their overall direction. But Chandler changes the way that teams think about the Suns, and I think eventually, because they signed him for a long time, he could really help them forge that identity kind of in a way, the parallel to a guy who's now on the, on the Clippers, but how I think Paul Pierce, even though he wasn't the most important player on the Wizards, it did feel like he changed the way that they saw themselves. I, yeah, I mean, you know, that's a great point. And uh, he, or purely with their young guards, and just the energy that he brought, the kind of confidence, the swagger that he brought, I mean, he has a lot in himself, obviously, and his ability to hit those late-game shots. And I definitely think that he brings that to the Clippers, a team that has been hit with some really devastating postseason Losses, you know, I mean, you know, look what happened last year. Uh, and you bring up a good point, too, also about the newcomer. You know, Hibbert was on my radar, but there are so many question marks because of how things have ended in Indianapolis about what player he is. You know, if he's the guy who we saw last season or if he can somehow return to form from a couple of years ago when, you know, he was just stifling everybody in the middle, particularly Blonde and the Pacers and Heat would have those epic playoff series against each other. But it's hard to know, you know, just like with some other players, it's hard to know what we're going to get with him. That's why I think Tyson is really steady. But I am really, you know, speaking of, of Paul Pierce, I'm really excited to see, you know, a guy who's, who's made playoff runs, deep playoff runs, won titles, you know, reached a pair of finals, how he uh, kind of imparts knowledge on a team that has really been struggling to get over the hump. He does have such, there's such a presence that radiates from around, from, from all over, from, from him and confidence uh, that I think that team, and Doc knows it, having having coached him in Boston, I think it's going to be a really key pickup for them when the playoffs begin. I don't expect them to play many minutes, you know, throughout the regular season. He's there, or he's there for the postseason, and uh, I kind of want to fast forward. I mean, just, yeah, I'm obviously excited about the regular season, but I'm very interested to see if he's able to channel some of his old postseason stuff, particularly how he played last season with Washington. It seemed like big shot after big shot. And I'm not mistaken, their last game, the game they got beat, he uh, had the ball left his hands like 0.1 or 0.2 seconds earlier. They would have won that game, but it came just a little bit later and missed 
the Wizards season was over. Yeah, I, I think, yeah, that would have either tied it or sent it to another, that, or, or, or that would have won. I can't remember which way, but the big difference for Doc this year and last year is last year their bench unit was just a disaster. And this year, yeah. while we still don't know how it's going to work out, they have so much more talent. And you brought up Paul Pierce, who I think is, is a good one to talk about. They also, Josh Smith is, when you ask him to do less, I think is, is an even better player. And I, I love what they can do with him. And somebody who I think is not getting enough attention, partially because we don't know if he's going to be in the rotation, but Cole Aldrich is not, he, you know, if you're asking him to be your savior, he's not going to do much. But if you're asking him to do 10 to 15 minutes a game, I think he can be a nice little filling guy for them. And they were so scared of DeAndre Jordan missing time. You know, he's been an Ironman for them his entire career that what he gives them is the ability to rest DeAndre a little bit more if they if they feel comfortable, if they're not going to play Josh at center, which I don't think they should unless they have to. And that's what exactly encapsulates what's so different about the Clippers this year is, well, we don't know if their guys are going to work out. At least they have people to try where you can have a reasonable expectation that they will succeed. Yeah, and you make a good point about just their depth because I remember watching as the playoffs were going on, um, and I think you know their series in San Antonio went seven games. Just because Doc didn't have the confidence to go deep into his bench, and and rightly so when you consider where his bench was, the starters were just gassed. You know, it was it, it, it was so obvious how much of an issue depth was for them, and how they just weren't going to have enough, frankly, to make a deep playoff push. They obviously had. You know, an extremely talented starting lineup, but just they did not have the depth unless their guys were extremely fatigued and just ran out of gas. Uh, so the fact that they addressed that issue and did it with getting some talented players, as you, as you rightly said, you can have reasonable expectations of. Um, and I totally agree about Josh Smith. Less is more. And I think in, in the role that he's in with the players that are around him, the team's potential to be, you know, for a deep playoff run, I think is a perfect fit situation for a player who has great size, skill, athleticism, and talent. But I think this situation bodes well for him to be, uh, to get the most out of it in, in a very productive, efficient way. Yeah, I mean, it's great to see them address the situation uh, with depth and doing so in a talented way. I mean, that's, you know, that's why I think they won the offseason. One of the one of the very best off-seasons of any team in the NBA. Agreed. And move on to the last of kind of the off-season parts, though this bridges the gap to the season, is the rookie you're most excited to see this year? That's a great question. And part of, you know, you know the guy that I, I have to say is is Russell. Um, his playmaking ability on the court, and I, I technically can't say Randall because he's not technically a rookie, even though this will be his first full NBA season after breaking his leg in the season debut. But I'm really interested to see Russell's playmaking ability and how it stacks up against the other elite guards in the Western Conference. You know, his passing, it's there. And his ability to find guys and put the ball through small windows and all that stuff. And once he gets more games under his belt and goes through, you know, the first round of playing a lot of these point guards, I'm interested to see how he adjusts and adapts and whatnot. It's not going to be easy. You know he's gonna he's definitely gonna struggle at times, but over time, I'm really excited to see how that uh, once he gets to understand the game better and, and the speed of the game and the pace of the game and 
you know, learns his teammates and, you know, where they like the ball more. I, that, that'll be a fun thing to see. Russell is definitely a fair pick. I'm going with the guy who's taken shortly after him, which is Willie Cauley-Stein. And what Cauley-Stein brings is very different. And I've had trouble explaining this to people because it's unusual. He's he's not athletic. He is athletic in kind of the showy traditional ways, but I think he's more quick than he is, you know, bouncy or fast. And so that is so unusual for a guy his size that he can move so well laterally and he can, you know, what he can do on pick and rolls is very different. And he does it more with quickness than with length. Anthony Davis does it mostly with length and he was a wonderful defender at Kentucky. He's doing pretty well in the NBA, but that doesn't necessarily mean I think Collie Stein is going to be a great player right away or ever, though I do have high expectations for him. But that's why I'm most excited to see him is because for me, when you what you want to see in a rookie, and D'Angelo Russell also totally fits this bill, is will it work? You know, like, can I see a pathway for them to succeed? And with Collie Stein, offensively, it's going to be a struggle. You know, his, his jumper, it, it could come along. It's going to take some time, but... Will he be in a situation where he can just become this college-style defensive destructive force that, you know, that by him being on the floor, he just messes up what other teams are trying to do? And if he can show inklings of that this year, that totally changes the way Sacramento needs to think about their team. Yeah, I, I do agree about that. He was he was close for me behind picking Russell and having watched him in a preseason game last week and just being intrigued with him generally. His length, his bounce, here's in his size. It's a really interesting package in a player. And there were several times during the game that I watched against Lakers in Vegas when Collie signs. You could see all that and his ability to kind of disrupt the game. And you know, I, I've talked to coaches about this before. Having a guy in the middle who causes players to think twice because of their length, their bounce, their just that presence is. I don't even. I, We've always tried to quantify the value, but I still feel like it's, it's you know, maybe we don't value it enough, or it's still, it's hard to really gauge it. But, um, he's very intriguing in that way because of those things that he brings to the table. I don't, if he pans, I, on offense, yeah, that's, that's going to take some time. But, you know, defensively, his ability to size, his bounce, all that stuff is there. I think he's an impact rookie right off the bat. Yeah, I like the idea of hesitation and, and how he's going to do that because something that we saw in Summer League was that he has no fear. You know, if he thinks he can get to a ball, he's going to get to the ball. And that is something that might fade with time. But at the same point, it's incredibly nice because when you're sitting there and you if you're, let's say, in the paint, and you think this guy could be coming from anywhere. He could be trying to block my shot. And as we've learned with years of covering the league, it's that even that thought, can be very dangerous because that makes players question their own instincts. And he could be somebody who does that eventually. And I really like that. And it also, it, it makes him so much less predictable in that way because, you know, will players think about it that way? How long will it take to come on? And will it have to spread around the league? You know, when he comes from behind and does a chase down block or the equivalent of kind of a half court chase down block. Cause he, he did that once in, I'm trying to remember who was against it. Maybe it was Houston in summer league where he, he came out of nowhere and the shot was just gone. And that's something that doesn't happen very often in the league because these players are as great as they are. 
they generally operate within general set of parameters. You know, there are exceptions with guys like LeBron. And if Collie's tying, he's not that caliber of guy. You know, that that's not that's I'm not gonna say he's he's the next anything like that, but anybody who can do that in a facet of the game is very valuable because they because ch- they if they can change the rules then that changes the way people think about them. Yeah, no, I I completely. If you can plant that seed of doubt in an offensive player's mind, uh, whether it's on the fast break or or just about you know them going anywhere near the lane, it is just it just impacts the game so so much. I, I mean, it's hard to really put in the words, or, and I don't know how we calibrate it, but. Just having someone like that, it's huge. Kind of transitioning, though, that was a season preview in a sense. This, to me, and you feel free to disagree, I'd be, ha- I'd be encouraged if you, if you do, in the sense, ranking these teams 1-5, to five, I think this is probably the clearest division in the league in terms of just pure like talent and expected record in terms of how they're going to finish. I don't disagree with that. You know, I like the Warriors top, then the Clippers, then Phoenix, then... The king and the Lakers. How's that? How's, how's that say with you? That's exactly the same. One thing that I, I I thought about a little bit was which which of those is kind of the is the most likely to flip in your mind. Um, potentially Phoenix and Sacramento, just because Sacramento is such a wild card to me. You know, it, maybe it all works out so much better, and the relationship between everybody is fabulous, and Carl and cousins get along good. And, you know, Rondo returns to his old form and he's playing great with his Kentucky buddies. And Willie Collie Stein, you know, is, is an impact player right off the bat. You know, I, I think he probably will be. I think Sacramento could surprise a lot of people and, and become that team. But it's just so hard, you know, it's like a, it, it feels like a gamble or a roll of dice. Like it could go one way or the other. But I still think that they have enough talent, more more than enough talent, to you know knock the Lakers off on a nightly basis. The Lakers are just they're in a youth movement right now, and no one really knows what to expect with Kobe and, and his health. So it's just you know, they're in a they're in a tough spot, and they're it's not easy for them being in a division with with two in my mind legitimate title contenders, and obviously in Golden State, you know the defending champions, but also. Uh, the Clippers and how they they loaded up this off season. Yeah, I I think that's a very I was with you on the on the split there and something else that I hadn't really thought about until we started our conversation is that a difference that I've seen in the way people talk about the Western Conference is that Damian Lillard gets a lot of credit and people say oh you know they they've got talent and Lillard you know he'll he'll keep them respectable and in my mind Demarcus Cousins is a better player than Damian Lillard right now, and probably by a significant margin. Obviously, he missed a lot of last year, and if they're going to miss him, they're not going to be good. But I feel like if Cousins is Cousins, and he's on the floor, let's say, for 70-plus games, which I think is reasonable, 70, I I wouldn't say, oh, you know, 80 or something like that. That's a little bit unfair. But if he's on the floor for 70 games, it's unusual to see a team with a top-10 overall player struggle that much. And it, I think their talent is better than those really bad teams. And the closest parallel, I'm not saying he's as good as him, but Anthony Davis did a, a really nice job with that Pelicans team that also suffered through a lot of injuries. And so if Cousins is on the floor, I think that they're better than some people think. 
Yeah, yeah. I mean, he, he is talented and as dominant as he can be at times. I know he can be volatile and his emotions can get the best of him. And you know how his relationship with Carl and everybody else kind of plays out. You know, from main city scene. But you can't deny how good, how dominant he is. I mean, the talent is there, and in that side, in his his with everything he brings to the table. I mean, his size, his dominance. It's just you can't argue that. And, and to go back to your point about Lillard um, in, in Portland, so, you know, I covered them during the playoffs for ESPN, and one of the things that, that stuck out to me, and I've heard it before, was Lillard has some defensive, he's lacking on the defensive end. Well, that was kind of said, you know, that, that had been talked about before, but then when Wes Matthews went down with his Achilles tear, it really, to me, exposed Lillard and I saw that all throughout, you know, the playoffs against, you know, against Memphis, um, obviously. And so when you're talking about Cousins and Lillard and, you know, that Lillard will keep them respectable, I don't I, – I've heard people make that remark. I think Lillard is an excellent offensive player. I do think that, you know, the, the Trailblazers are a bunch of patchwork – or, you know, a pretty patchwork roster. And to the point of, like, Lillard versus Cousins, I think it's – I think his cousin is by a wide margin. If, if you know, and put his talent and all that stuff aside, I just think that what he, his size and everything, and this you know, goes back to the Pacific, and and why I think you know if he plays seventy plus games, he just makes the team. He gives them so much, and you could argue it's it's because of there's just not many players in the league who are that big and are that good and that dominant and can really take over a game. And if Carl is able to channel that and focus it and everything works out, yeah, absolutely. I think they can surprise a lot of people. And one other reason that Phoenix and Sacramento could flip is that Phoenix has, uh, I, was, I did a podcast with Seth Partnow today, and the term that I used in that was disaster potential. And the reason for that for them, there are a couple, there are a couple of ways that it could happen. One of them is that their forward talent is very shaky. I mean, it's not its not that they're terrible. It's not, they're not like Brooklyn's guards in that sense of you just don't know how it's going to work. But they don't have a ton of players, and the best forward they have, Markeith Morris, by what happened this summer, seemed very ready to be anywhere else. And while he has since walked that back, as players do when they make a trade demand and do not get traded... I always think that once you've once you've kind of cast that die out there, then that's really something that you want, whether it's going to be percolating below the surface or eventually boiling over it. Yeah, I I, I agree with that point. I don't. Phoenix is, and it's funny because you know had they gotten Lamarcus, they get the position to be in, but yet here they are now, and then everything with Marquise, it and it could go south pretty quickly for them. You know, I like Bledsoe a lot. And I really like Chandler for them, you know, everything that he brings. But those two in this conference are not enough. And if the other things don't gel, and I, I, I have a ton of respect for Hornacek, and I like the job that Ryan's done there. But uh, I, it's just so tough in the West, and I don't think those two guys are enough, and I think it could go south pretty quickly for them. And, you know, no one's going to let up, obviously, or, and show them any mercy. Uh, so yeah, they could slide down the standings and uh, pretty quickly if 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 they don't keep it together. 
And something on that note that shocked me today, I, I already knew that he was a, a low, Harunasek was a low-paid coach. You and I both think that he's very good at it. He has a team option for next year. So he's being paid $2 million, which I believe is one of the lowest, if not the lowest, of any coach. He has a team option for next year that has not yet been picked up. And that sounds alarm bells in my head, because if you have somebody who people think is a good coach and you have them on a good price... Why not give them the confidence? This isn't an issue like a player, you know, where you want them to be hungry. With a coach, I think you want to show that they're a part of your future and that you're good, that you want them there because you don't have bird rights on a coach. You don't have any ability to match or anything like that. And so if you want somebody and you have them at a good number, I think you lock that in and you show that confidence. Uh, yeah, it's so overlooked. I mean, people... I mean, obviously the talent on the court matters so much, but the idea of, of having a coach who potentially, you know, be in a lame duck type situation affects things, I think, more than people might initially realize. And this is true for management as well. But it, like, you know, bringing in any kind of player, that player, is, am, I, am I playing for you or am I going to be playing for some other guy down the road? It really just affects uh, every facet of the organization. So... And, and Horn, you know, he's very respected. I mean, he's considered, I think, in the upper third of coaches in, in this league, uh, without question. I don't know why, you know, that's happened. And, you know, I would hope for his sake and for the sake of the organization that they take care of that pretty quickly. Do you have, do you have an expectation? I, I, I don't know. I, I'm trying to figure out what, what, what my issue is with Phoenix also. And something that I talked about, I think it was with Ben Golliver, is, this possibility that they're also considering keeping on their point guard carousel and possibly moving Eric Bledsoe, and that's another disaster potential idea, not because, you know, Eric Bledsoe, losing Eric Bledsoe just kills your team, but because he's a good player, you know, and Fine. the idea that they've done, which is a kind of a spiritual analog to what Philly has done, but I actually think it's more egregious in Phoenix's case, is the idea that, while I think you should seek out any deal you can, the idea that nobody is safe can be dangerous for players, and I think it can also make them unhappy, is that, yeah, they got Tyson Chandler, and that's wonderful that they got that commitment, but, you know, basically it seems like everybody who's gone through those doors has gone out those doors relatively quickly, too. Yeah, there's been a ton of turnover there, and it was really exciting when they had Bledsoe, Dragic, and Isaiah Thomas, and, you know, maybe that was never feasible. We've never really seen a team try to do, like, a three-headed point guard, you know, that, and those guys all bring, you know, are very talented and can score and impact the game in a lot of ways. But once things started going, going south of them, it seemed like it happened pretty quickly. And if they were to lose Bledsoe, who, you know, I, I saw a lot of them when I was at the LA Times and he was with the Clippers and backing up Chris Paul is just a tremendous, uh, tremendous athlete. And I I really think that as one of the, the better point guards in the, in the NBA, although, there's just so many amazing point guards right now, but yeah, it's it's there's been to me far too much turnover there. Um, I know that you know it's all in the spirit of trying to get the best guys in and whatnot, but you make a really good point. the The idea that nobody is safe, I think, is just as it's unsettling for a coach to be in a lame duck situation, and it's unsettling for the players because they don't know maybe, you know, who's coaching that team in the future. Is he my guy or, you know, somebody else? And what that means for my contract or my career? It's very unsettling for players, I think, coming into a situation where they've seen really good players being moved, just kind of like, you know, trade ships, you know, very aimless, not aimlessly, but, you know, without hesitation. 
elsewhere. It definitely gives me pause. And, you know, look, players talk, they talk all the time to each other. And the second you start to get uh, a reputation as being kind of cutthroat or ruthless in your business dealings, and granted, it is a business at the end of the day, but there's always a line that you kind of have to have to walk of, of doing that while also, you know, showing some uh, humanness or empathy or whatever you want to call it. And I think Phoenix is, because of the movie they've made, they set up camp in a very specific area and people know it. Yeah, I, I think the idea of empathy is important here. And while, you know, it's fun to think about teams in the abstract and if you want to use the video game analogy, you know, that you can move the guys around or fantasy sports or anything like that. It's worth remembering, and you've done a great job in various moments. I, th- I was thinking of the, Re- the Rajon Rondo piece about kind of the humanness of players. And, and a part of that, that that we don't think about as much because we think of them as individuals is also thinking of them as a collective because this is a group of people just like anybody else who is in a work situation, and you spend a lot of time with people, and especially if you think they're doing a good job, and all of a sudden they're gone. And that's hard to take, especially if you're not given a good reason. And while you can justify the moves, and I'm not saying, you know, other than I think they gave up too much for Brandon Knight, I think that was a pretty big mistake. A lot of their moves were justified in that sense. You do have to think, and corporations do this all the time, so it's kind of a parallel that the NBA does not have with certain teams with big business, is the idea of how moving players affects the players that you're keeping. Yeah. No, yeah, you're right. And I've heard people talk about that, we kind of need to get away from this idea that sports isn't a workplace environment, you know, that it's different because of sports. I mean, but at the end of the day, you have people who are being paid to do a job. They're working together all towards a common goal. And just like in an office building or, you know, any place really, there's certain things that need to happen. There needs to be a stable ownership or management group in order for, you know, there needs to be like a stable uh, you know, it's a coach on the court, you know, or, or it could be an office manager or whatever. There needs to be a stable leader who can help kind of steer them in the right direction. And there needs to be chemistry amongst the people out there. You know, this is often talked about with Kobe Bryant, with him loving many of his teammates the wrong way just because of his kind of dominating, you know, win-or-die personality. But we, we cast this aside because it's sports so often. And, you know, the things that players go through, if they are in a toxic work environment, we just throw, you know, we say, you know, you're making a lot of money and deal with it, and that's part of it. And granted, yeah, they're getting paid very handsomely to do this job, but it doesn't remove the factors in what could be, for instance, a toxic workplace environment that greatly affect your performance. And I know, you know I'm, I'm very into the analytics movement, and I love how we're able to now quantify a lot of things that, Maybe we weren't able to quantify or were better able to understand what certain players can do and how valuable they are. I do think the chemistry analytics, when we, when we get to that point, is going to be an enormous breakthrough uh, in terms of what players are the very best teammates and make everyone else around them so much better and, and you know, the, the production goes through the roof and it just seems like the overall mood is better. Well, you know, once we crack that code, I think, that will uh, uh, that'll be huge, and and I can't wait to see the arms race for people. I'm sure that it's already happening. I've heard of some teams or some people, you know, kind of on the fringes of it. But that's the tricky part of chemistry. It's this enormously powerful thing that seems, you know, like lightning in a bottle to get sometimes. It's just 
But if you have it, you know, we've seen so many teams that overachieve greatly even if they're not as talented. And we've also seen many great teams that have tons of talent that didn't have chemistry and underperformed, you know, tremendously. So, yeah, it's, it certainly plays a role. But again, you know, as, as I often hear, you know, the NBA is a workplace environment. And, you know, there's just, there are so many aspects of it that function as any business does in the real world with how, in terms of how employees are treated. And I don't think that can never be overlooked. Yeah, I think that that's a great point. And what makes sports in particular so hard to pinpoint in this world is that I think, for the most part, and this is something your colleague Ethan Sherwood Strauss and I have talked about, is that I think athletes, the closest analog to them is entertainers. And when you think about entertainers, like if you think about, let's say, a band, you know, they'll obviously they'll have issues. You can think about the Beatles that basically broke up because of personal issues, and there are bands like that forever. You know, it's not a, a new a new phenomenon. But in those worlds, other than certain niches of it, you never have a third party that's changing band members all the time. You know, maybe it happens due to an illness or an injury or something like that, and you have somebody step in, but you never have it where like all of a sudden they go, oh, well, we think we found a better lead singer, so we swap them for you, so you can thank us later. And that's not to say that you can't do that. I mean, there are bands that have done that and, and improved and things like that, but it's something that makes sports really different because these are all supremely talented individuals, and you are you think about them. I think it maybe it's also because they're so physically gifted. You think about them as being kind of different than most people. But what I found is that the the closer you get to it, and the more you're around it, they're actually more similar than than they, most people expect. You said it as well as it could be said. I, I, and I tell you again. I've talked to coaches and other people around the league. And I think in many ways we kind of hold on to these old ideas of machismo or you know whatever you want to call it, where you know there could be a man, it's a power through and whatnot. But you know, and I, and I can speak from experience covering the Lakers last year, and I can cite like this, just the the relationship between Kobe Bryant, for instance, and Jeremy Lin, and how. Uh, if you damage a player's confidence, what that does to him. And I don't think Jeremy is, is any different than any other person in the world, but if he was in the situation that he was in where, you know, Kobe is, is kind of calling it out early in the year and, you know, it's very questionable whether any of that is warranted. And then, you know, the media turns on Jeremy right after that and then, you know, constantly questioning about all the changes he didn't do, um, even though he's kind of, he's not really doing anything terribly wrong. Um, he's just trying to find his footing, and then Byron turns on. So it's just it, it all that stuff. I think is so easily and quickly overlooked, but you can't overstate how important it is. And I, you know, I once had a coach tell me specifically that people on the outside will never understand how valuable it is to remove a cancerous player from a locker room. And I'm just speaking generally. I'm not talking about any specific player with any specific team even in this conference. But he was talking about, like, in any situation, if you have a guy who kind of is divisive, even if he's a really good player and he can be in a prime of his career, and, you know, I know some people have talked about Rudy Gay sometimes in this, you know, because you see how good Memphis got after he left and in Toronto. Um, and then, you know, look at Josh Smith, and he was, you know, he left Detroit, and then that's, you know, they went on a, a real hot winning streak. But uh, the culture just emphasized it. It's hard to overstate just how, like, when that guy is gone, how the mood, everything just increases. Guys are confident. They're they're having fun again. 
and on the court you see the you, you see the result. So um, yeah, I mean, you know, I don't. Again, I think it's hard to overstate the importance of that, and it's just such a big, big thing. But I don't even think we've really scratched the surface and really truly understanding it. And that ties in with the team that we've talked about the least in this is the Golden State Warriors. And the Warriors show the other component of these personal dynamics, which is that success can cure everything. You know, that if you have these issues, but you're winning a bunch of games, I mean, ideally, if you can win 67, 70 games, that other than the Shaq Kobe Lakers, generally, that can allow things to stick together. I'm not saying the Warriors had these huge problems or anything like that, but it makes it harder for them to even happen if you're winning because... Unlike again, not a parallel to the workplace, it's such a such a different atmosphere in terms of success and failure. You know, you're in basketball. It's 82 games in the regular season, and so much of your day to day satisfaction for most players, not all players, but most, is on whether you get that W or that L, whether you were huge in getting it or not. And what the Warriors showed is that. You can also, that chemistry as individuals is important, but also chemistry on the court in a basketball sense is important. These were players that could pass the ball really well. These were players that were fundamentally unselfish. And why I think they got so much better during the year is that once they developed the trust in one another that if you get a good look, I'm going to give you the ball and I don't need to get mine because if if I'm unselfish now, I'll get the looks when I need to get them. It helps a lot when you win, but I think that was a major part of what fueled their success. I can't give enough credit to Steve Kerr. I know there's some people who say, oh, you know, he just, he, he sets in a great situation and Mark Jackson deserves the credit. I mean, I, I just think that's just a terrible argument. The, the environment, the jovial kind of togetherness that, they, that, that he's created there is, you know, there's so many teams that would love to capture that. Granted, yeah, he's working with some really talented players, arguably the best shooter that the game has ever seen, and oh, by the way, you know, another guy who scored like 37 points in a quarter. So there's a lot of talent there, and there's some incompetent players as well. So it's an ideal situation to be in. But I'm so impressed, and I was, you know, I was impressed being around them in the finals by the, the environment that they have. And they're winning, of course, but there's so much more that goes into creating this kind of atmosphere. And you, you don't necessarily even see that among, you know, around every great team that's always winning. You know, there can still be got, you know, divides amongst players who, you know, one night, you know, they're putting up stats, the next night another guy's doing it. But, you know, the first guy, he wants it. He wants his numbers, and he's very aware of that. But I, I'm so impressed by how together the Warriors are. And I am... Granted, extremely talented team, but I think that plays such a huge role in their success last season. So much of the credit to Steve. I think their attention to detail, you know, I, I, I love the assistant coaches, you know, Rod Adams especially, I think is, is, uh, is fabulous. But their attention to detail on, on things outside of that, you know, I did a story during the final about how, um, and he's no longer there, but the Warriors team psychologist also was a neuropsychologist who worked with Navy SEALs and uh, other elite uh, members of the Special Ops Forces down in Southern California where they train, I think, believe in Coronado or around that area. And, you know, he was explaining to me how you communicate with players to get a better sense of, you know, what things are on your mind. But, you know, if you look stressed, what 
kind of factors are going on with your life, if it's if it's family related, if it's financial because you have a contract situation coming up or whatnot. And I was just very impressed by the foresight of Steve Kerr to and his staff obviously to really value something like that and what that could do for the chemistry and the togetherness of the team. And again, you know, I know it's a talented group, but I was just so 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 impressed by that all throughout the year from them, and particularly in the final. Yeah, I think what you're getting at is something that was one of the biggest takeaways for me covering them day in, day out, which is how prepared they were. This was a team that, even though they had never experienced the Western Conference Finals, much less the NBA Finals, that was never their issue. You know, they had they had stretches that were, were down, and some of that was, you know, just adjusting to everything else, but it wasn't preparation. They were really well prepared, and they made amazing adjustments during series. What I like what Tim Kawakami of the San Jose Mercury News said. He said it, I think, in the second series. He said, once they figure you out, you're done. And that's something that you saw with the Warriors, was once they made those adjustments, they didn't lose again. This, they never went to a Game 7, and they were willing to put everything on the table. And that is a commitment from the coaches and from the players. I mean, Andrew Bogut could have won Defensive Player of the Year this past year. He didn't, but he could have won it. He didn't play in the last two games of the NBA Finals and his team won a championship. That is something yeah. that is credit. You just Everybody deserves credit for that. I- Iguodala came off the bench, even though he's been a starter his whole career and was the Finals MVP. And that is individuals doing the right thing, but it is also success and preparation and groundedness. And that isn't to say that it will continue forever, because th- as we've seen with great teams in the past... Things can always change, but they stand out among those teams because, yeah, they did have some good fortune with teams having injuries and things like that, but once they, you know, once they hit their stride in a series, they never lost again. Yeah, and quickly to the, to the thing about, like, having good fortune and luck, you know, every, you know, to be clear, every champion has required, no matter how great, has required some measure of luck along the way, and in some cases, a lot of it, um, just because you know, it, it might be some game here or getting you know an injury uh, there, an injury break. It just, there's all kinds of ha- things that happen throughout the course of the season that can be complicated as well. And I'm a little urged by this, if only because, you know, Dr. Rose has been making this remark about the, the Warriors playing. And beyond that, I, I, you know, they were the healthiest team in the league last year. And some people just say, oh, you know, they got lucky, they didn't have any injuries and whatnot. And while injuries can be, um, you know, some injuries can be fluke things. Like, there's no doubt about it. You know, a guy jumps up, comes down, lands on another player's foot, sprains his ankle. There's not much you can do about that. But as particularly as my colleague Tom Habershow wrote, the Warriors were one of the most aggressive teams in terms of trying to uh, be on the cutting edge of injury prevention with, you know, biometrics and, uh, coming up with algorithms that, that help them better understand their, their players' health and ability to perform that day. So I really applaud them for that. I think you know, the fruits of their labor played out over the course of the year leading to their, their great health. And also to the point about them figuring you out, I was, they truly did. And I remember, um, I want to say it was game three, correct me if I'm wrong, uh, in uh, Cleveland, and like when they, in the fourth quarter, they scored. I want to say like 36 points after scoring 18 the previous quarter, 
And I heard some rumbles from people saying, like, oh, in that fourth quarter, even though they lost that game, the Warriors figured them out. You know, they figured out, and I believe it was from, you know, they're playing David Lee and kind of going to a smaller lineup. But it was like, you know, they figured them out. And they rolled the next uh, however many games, and it was never really in question or in doubt. It was it, it was just so impressive, and it, it just goes so much into preparedness and elite coaching. But once the Warriors kind of solved the riddle of whatever team they were playing, you know, and it, it always depends on how exactly how complex that riddle is. But yeah, it was it was it was over, and that's a pretty remarkable thing to watch. I mean, these are NBA level athletes, and you know, some of the best coaches in the world. But there was this kind of helpless sense out there. And granted, you know, LeBron is playing without Kyrie and Kevin Love, but nonetheless, when the Warriors, once they had your number, you were, you were pretty much done. That's a great point. I had totally forgotten about Game 3. That is exactly what happened. And the way that, in my head, that it happened, sitting in the arena, was the issue that they exploited was having guys like Mozgov defend in space. And once they kind of started realizing that, because Lee was running, they were running a lot of high pick and roll with Lee and Curry, and the the Cavs were struggling with it because they're not used to the way that you do that. Also, Stephen Curry is a player that you have to defend differently than any other person on the planet. That's just what he does, and probably different different than any other player in the history of the league, because you have to defend him. You have to be conscious from 35, you know, 25, 30 feet out, not because he's necessarily going to shoot it every time, but because he, he can't, and that's really different. And so what they were able to do was see some of that nuance, and then they what the, and then everybody talks about it with when they made the switch to Draymond at center, but I think that they learned the lessons that fueled that earlier. And what makes them distinct among the great teams also is that they have a lot of good ball movers, a lot of good passers. So that allows them to exploit whatever gap they have, and they're so talented defensively. I mean, one of the revelations for me, I'm not his biggest booster, but the way that Harrison Barnes played defense on power forwards in the conference finals, and actually mostly in the Memphis series, was a revelation. That is something that you wouldn't necessarily expect. Kerr said that it was because he's unusually strong for his size, which I think is part of the explanation. But just having that complement of players that not only are game with it mentally, but are game with it physically to say, whatever we need to do to beat opponents, we can do it and we will do it, is unusual. I mean, I would even say, granted, Cleveland ended up having to go to this by necessity, but I think that my biggest worry with them as being a title contender is that I don't think they're as dedicated to maximizing their talent as a team like the Warriors, partially because they have such a dominant personality in LeBron, and they understand that making him happy is most important. Yeah, there doesn't seem to be that dominant kind of personality with the Golden State Warriors. Um, I just don't see Curry as as being that kind of person who, and you, I mean, let's not forget, look, LeBron is the most powerful athlete in the NBA, and he's, I mean, you could make the case that in, in all the professional sports, really. I and mean, he, the ripple effect from every decision he makes, and from obviously what he wants done, you, it's just you can't overstate it. But, but you're right; it, it creates this other kind of effect of like you know wanting to appease him and. There were stories, I think Mark Stein did one after the finals about, you know, he really calls the shots for Cleveland, you know, and 
you know, in terms of the coach David Blatt and LeBron and all that stuff, but it just, it seems, it seems like Golden State just doesn't have this, I don't want to say they're completely free of drama, but they're very, it's, it seems minimal at best. You know, like their players have, have, have put enough of their egos aside to dedicate themselves to the mission of playing for each other and to win. And their versatility, this is back to what you were saying, their, their ability to adapt to whatever opponent they're playing and players, if they're, if they're changing roles a little bit, if it's, you know, Barnes playing fours better or, you know, whatever, their ability to adapt to that situation with the personnel that they have, many of them are very versatile as it is, um, is striking. And I'm, you know, we say the best for last year. I'm, I'm really interested to see what their motivation is like. Um, if it's because anytime you win a championship, there's a, there can be a little bit of a hangover just because you won, you reached the mountaintop, you did it. And, you know, are they going to be as hungry the second time around as they were the first? How does Curb manage that? Uh, it, it'll be, it'll be great. It'll be, yeah, it'll be a lot of fun to see, but it'll be fun to see throughout the season because there's going to be so many great matchups between them and some of the dominant teams. Uh, you know, I, I can't wait for the, you know, Golden State and San Antonio to face each other, Golden State and Oklahoma City, Golden State and the Clippers. There's just, there'll be a lot of really fun games to see just during the regular season on a, you know, on a Tuesday night or whatever between that team and, and some of the other teams out here. One of the best things that happened to the 2015-16 team is how little respect they've gotten as a contender this year. I mean, the example that's in my head because I watched it yesterday was on open court, none of them picked the Warriors to even make the finals. This is a team that won 67 games last year, outscored their opponents by 10 a game, and bringing functionally everyone back. And the Warriors, for better or for worse, have rabbit ears with that sort of thing. That's just the way they are. They hear everything that everybody says about them, and they use it as motivation. You can do that in a positive way. You can do that in a negative way. And I think that that's a good thing for them because that gives them the fuel because they have that. And also, you know, what Doc said, the fact that they've still never beaten the Spurs in a playoff series, they've never faced the Thunder in a playoff series. What, what is something that's really weird about this Warriors team? So they've made the playoffs the last three years. They've played six series. They've never played the same team twice. So they don't have this feud with anybody but they have a little bit of a history with everybody. And so I think that that's important in the way of just creating an identity and forging it and giving them something to prove, that they've never had to do that. And that they, you know, the people who say the things about luck and say all this, you know, I think that it might not feel them to gun for 65 wins, but I think that it will fuel them to make sure that they are at their A1 game when we hit April 20th. You know, I, I haven't thought about it, but I think that's a, that's a great point. For a team that, by almost every statistical measure, goes down as one of the most dominant in NBA history during the course of the season, I mean, they're right up there with Jordan the Bulls in the mid-90s. The Warriors have gotten very little respect, it seems. And, you know, there's a lot of focus on San Antonio. There's focus on how the Clippers have reloaded. You know, people are like, oh, Cleveland, you know, they have everybody back. They're going to be good. And yet here you just, you know, you have this team rolled to the finals and 
had so many games where they just blew everybody out of the gym and returning virtually everybody back. And, you know, you only have to assume they're going to be better in another year in Steve's system and, you know, and playing with each other. Uh, and his players, you know, such a young team as it is, you know, Stephen and, and uh, Clay especially, you only have to assume they're going to be better. And yet, yeah, there's so much. It's not only people not giving them credit, but it seems like they're, you know, as a doc, just saying, oh, they're, they got lucky and all this other stuff. But I think that that's great for them. And if they have rabbit ears and they're paying attention to everything, which it seems like they are, um, I hope that, you know, I say this just as, as someone who likes to watch good basketball. I hope that provides them with the fuel they need and helps them avoid kind of the hangover from from having won a championship. Uh, and you're probably, yeah, I hadn't really considered that, but that's a great point. It feels like for as great as they were, they're almost on the opposite end of the spectrum. They're, they receive as little credit as, as uh, a great, great team has in recent memory, at least for me. The juxtaposition for me is with the Spurs the year before. The Spurs the year before, they had that they had a great finals. Obviously, they beat a closer to full-strength team in that Miami team and ended up basically breaking up that team. But that Spurs team, people, even if they even if they didn't think, you know, that that they were the strongest, they were the strongest they'd been the year before. Everybody gave them the respect. Everybody said that. And I would argue that last year's Warriors team was better than the Spurs in the regular season and on the aggregate. I think the Spurs had a better playoff run because they had they had tougher opponents, so they got to prove it a little bit more. And the Warriors aren't getting that. And some of that is the old school biases of, oh, you know, quote unquote, small ball and their jump shooting team and all that kind of stuff. But what is so astonishing to me about that is almost all of those old-school criticisms of the Warriors are trumped by the fact that they were the best defensive team in the league. And that is the oldest of old-school. You know, people talk about a back-to-the-basket game and all that sort of stuff. The best defensive team being a champion is probably the most old-school basketball thing that exists. Yeah, what do they say? Defense wins championships. And, you know, you have the top defensive team in the league, and I, you know, I know Byron Scott can say some things at times that makes people kind of roll their eyes, but, you know, he was asked for his title contender and who he thought would be the favorite this year. And he said Golden State. And he said, it's pretty simple. They had the number one offense in the league last year and the number one defense. He said, it's a pretty good combination. And for me, it's really that simple. You know, health always plays a factor, but you can say that for every team. But it's hard not to like the Warriors to go back. They have a tough load because this is the West. Do it. But all the pieces are there, and because of the way they've kind of gotten shafted in terms of respect, you have to assume that's only going to push them harder, which, given the talent that's already there, and, and you know, we know what they can do. We saw it all last year. You, have, you only have to assume that you know, when they get their foot on somebody's throat in a game this year, that they're not going to let up. Yeah. Well, the last question I want to ask you, of course, if you want to talk about other stuff, we can, but are there any players at any level in this, so it doesn't have to be becoming stars, that you think are breakout candidates that will just reach another level this year? Reach another level. Man, you know, gosh, nobody really jumps out at me. You know, Blake had a great year last year, but I can't, I couldn't really call him a breakout guy. On Sacramento, I don't know if I can call anybody there. And then Golden State, they've already busted out. I mean, all those guys are great. Um, and I can't, you know, nobody in the Lakers certainly jumps out unless Julius Randle comes out of nowhere and, like, you know, Phoenix. Nobody, yeah, I can't. 
being around the league, there's different candidates, but within this specific division, there's not a name who jumps out to me in a, in a dramatic way. The only I had I struggled with this too. For a lot of other divisions, it was easy. In this one, it was hard. And the two guys that I thought about, and it's far more the first one, is I think people don't acknowledge how awesome Demarcus Cousins is, and it's not going to be a breakout in terms of him being so much better than he was, but in terms of the acknowledgement of it, I think that could be a sea change. And along those lines, I don't love the guy's game. I was low on him in the draft. I'm still low on him, but. I feel like Ben McElmore, people are just going to talk about him now. That the Kings will be a little bit more relevant. He's an athlete. I think he's a better athlete than he is a basketball player. But those players, if the team can be even slightly relevant, those are the type of players that become a lot more famous, too. You make, I, I like the DeMarcus one. His numbers, it's hard to argue that you know he's, he's one of the most dominant players in the NBA. But I think, and, and maybe this goes back to just, his kind of volatile personality and he's gotten tossed from some games, picked up a lot of texts and, but I think that if things gel well with Carl and some of the other guys and, you know, given the talent and, and everything that's already there, he absolutely could burst onto the scene and people kind of recognize him more as being the great player that he can be and that he is when he's not, you know, doing the other stuff. He, it's just, you know, there's, there's nobody in the NBA quite like him. And when he really gets, you know, I've seen several of these games and, you know, I've looked at, at the box scores afterwards, you know, as we're hanging in the locker room or something like that and you just look at his stat line and it jumps off the page. There's, uh, if the situation bodes well and the ingredients are certainly there, he could, take his game to another level, which when you consider what we've seen from him in spots, is pretty scary. Yeah, the other guy, when you when you were talking about Cousins, that I was thinking about, which isn't a breakout in that sense, but a reclamation would be Hibbert. Because he's, a, while his offensive game comes and goes, and he's been frustrating to me since he was at Georgetown, his defensive ability is important, and he, to, in my eyes, other than maybe Brandon Bass, is the only strong defender on the Lakers, and so if he can give them any semblance of a defense, I think that totally rehabs his image in terms of the way that people, whether it's media or, most importantly, player personnel people, think about his game and what his role is moving forward because he's about to have a new contract. Yeah, and the thing I want to see most from him is if he's able to kind of focus on the defensive end, return the form as we saw, you know, a few years ago when he was one of the most dominant defensive players in the game by far. And the Lakers have told him, we just want you to focus on that end. Just be that guy. Don't worry about offense. We have other guys who can take care of that. And he seems to understand, and he talked about, you know, I'm here to play defense. I'm here to be, you know, with, with verticality and to, to alter shots to the rim, block shots to the rim, make guys think before coming in here to kind of clean up messes so guys on the perimeter can play more aggressively, knowing that I have their back and all that. If he is able to just focus on that and, and be able to to return to form, even just on the defensive end of the court and not you know worry about offense at all, absolutely. I mean, we've seen what he can do. We've seen how capable and dominant he can be on that end of the court. If he can, if he can just return to some form of that or even close, 
Absolutely, in terms of a breakout bag. Absolutely. Are there? Is there anything else you want to talk about? No, that's. I think we covered pretty much all the ground I can think of. One was something that isn't Pacific. Uh, do you have a an NBA Finals prediction yet, or and or a champion? Um, I think I had to pick it yesterday, or maybe I haven't picked it yet. I want to say that I went with San Antonio, just because I I think the addition of the Marcus and David West put them over the top. I also see Kawhi taking another step forward this summer or taking step forward this season. Um, but I mean, you know, picking a champion or even just picking a Western Conference Finals champion, it's just so tough, you know, because if Oklahoma City is healthy, you know, that they're just, I don't know if there's a better team. And San Antonio, obviously, the move they made, and then, oh, by the way, of Golden State, which turned basically everybody from a team that won 167 games last year and blew out everybody most, you know, every game of the year. So it's tough. I think I went with San Antonio, but like it's by the slimmest of margins, really. Yeah, I, I think I think that's a good way of putting it. But yeah, if I, I thank so much for taking the time. It's a pleasure to talk with you. Yeah, pleasure, Danny. Um, anytime. If you ever need anything, just let me know. Thanks so much to Baxter for taking the time. You can read him at ESPN, and you can follow him on Twitter at Baxter Holmes, B-A-X-T-E-R-H-O-L-M-E-S. Great writer. He wrote a three-part series on the Lakers over the last little bit. I think it was over the last two weeks. That's definitely worth reading. His material earlier in the summer on Rajon Rondo was fascinating because he covered him for years as part of the Boston Globe. And, yeah, he's just a very good writer. I love talking with him as well. This concludes the Division Capsule podcast. The six of them felt like it took a long time. Not, criti- not criticizing myself. I love doing it. Just they were they ended up being pretty spread out. But I, I think it was a lot of fun, good content out there. If you want to keep keep up with me, I have a Facebook page now, which is Facebook slash uh, Daniel Larue MBA. It should be pretty easy to find. I also have the link on my Twitter page, and also I do a weekly mailing list. The link for that should be on my Facebook page, and usually I put something on Twitter about every week. That comes out on Thursdays, and it's my material, and I give some recommendations of the things that I like the most. And, of course, everything on Sporting News and Real GM and Warriors World. And also, if you want to subscribe to this podcast or the Dunked on Basketball podcast, which I am frequently on, though not recently, because Nate Duncan has been doing some amazing work talking with writers of every team, and I only cover one team. But it's been it's been great to hear what he's been able to do with that. So, But what I recommend with this and any other podcast is if you subscribe and if you write a review, that allows us to go to advertisers. And also that raises our profile so that when people are coming through the lists for things to download, they can do that. And also, as crazy and as simple as it sounds, if you like something, tell other people about it. Uh, something you'll notice with my Twitter feed and with my mailing list when I do that is I try to use the limited platform I have to elevate and promote the work that I think is worth reading. And for me, that's not about what my professional affiliations are. It's about what I read and I think is worth reading. So I encourage you all to do the same. And I, Nate and I do recommendations on Dunked On. I don't really do them on this podcast, though if something comes across, I definitely will. There's been a lot of great work on Lamar Odom recently. That was actually in my last mailing list. A great piece by Jim Cavan and Lee Jenkins, who is, in my opinion, one of the absolute best in this business, wrote a great piece, which was a follow-up of his, I think it was 2011 piece, which was remarkable as well. So thank you so much for listening. Um, it, it's been a real pleasure doing this. I, as much as I enjoy the offseason being a CBA nerd, the offseason is legitimately fun for me. The season is what it's all about. And if you are a basketball fan, and I think every basketball writer has to be in some way, shape, or form, 
that is what it's about. And we've seen a lot of discussion, you know, we've, we've gone through a lot right now. I've done a lot of my own writing, but predictions are one thing and actually getting to watch the product is a joy. And yes, it takes a lot of time, especially when I'm doing dunked on, but it's worth it every single day. And I, I'm thankful that I get to do this and I appreciate what real GM has done for me and everyone else. So thank you so much for listening. Take care and make it a great day. Napa guy knows the only way you'd give a freshly minted driver a brand new car is if he promises to never drive it. Instead, let him grind the gears and knock over the neighbor's mailbox in something a little more suited to his skill level. And with over 400,000 parts and a little Napa know-how, he can safely drive something that's nearly as old as he is. It's not perfect, but it's perfect for him. That's Napa know-how. Run to Old Navy for revolutionary prices on summer's most stylish shorts. Tomorrow only, they're all 50% off for the whole family. All your favorite shorts, denim, linen, all of them. All shorts are 50% off tomorrow only. Run to Old Navy. Valid 630 excludes active.